right, good morning, everyone. Why don't we stand together, um, stretch a little bit, and we'll pray, and then we'll get started with uh, the message this morning. Father, thank you so much uh, that you are here with us today, um, that you are our refuge, and you are a God that we can trust, that in the face of um, danger um, and distress, that you are present with us. And uh, we thank you for uh, your word uh, this morning. And um, just as we go to study the Psalms, may we find them um, to be encouraging um, and useful in our walk with you. And may they point us towards your heart for us and um, your defense of us. We thank you that you are good and uh, that you are with us this morning. And just, uh, yeah, pray that you would uh, continue to bless our time together. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Well, uh, if your Bible isn't already turned there, maybe uh, grab it and turn to Psalm 11. But as you do, this is gonna be challenging for those of you who use a, a, a phone, but also keep your, finger, or keep your finger in Psalm 11, but turn to Genesis 16. Um, before, we, uh, before we go into the Psalm this morning, we're gonna make a stop over in Genesis here um, to get started. Uh, after high school, uh, before I started my undergrad degree, uh, I spent a year on the West Coast at Cape and Ray Harbor um, in British Columbia. And uh, during that year, I sat through uh, lectures that covered around two-thirds of the Bible. And as you might expect, there were uh, some things that we learned during that year that stuck out to me more than other things did. Um, there were things that I remember to this day, and there are things that I do not. Um, one of the things that did stick out to me um, was when we went through uh, the Hebrew names for God in the Old Testament. Uh, I didn't have much of an appreciation at that time when I started Bible school that there are a plethora of names in Hebrew that get used um, for God, and we translate them as maybe two, the Lord and God. Um, but really, there's, there's a number of these names for God in the Old Testament, and they're kind of hidden, and um, they, they're helpful for us because sometimes they are used as shorthands for describing God's character. When we look at uh, the name that gets used, it has a different meaning um, depending on, on the context, and it has a different encouragement for us. And there's one name of God that, when I was at Cape and Ray, that we didn't study in depth, um, and it's probably because it only gets used once in the Old Testament. It's in this verse in Genesis chapter 16. Um, and it's used by Hagar, the servant girl of Sarah, who is Abraham's wife. Um, and the narrative that precedes this verse in Genesis 16 um, is probably one that's familiar to many of us. Um, we know that Abraham and Sarah um, were this couple that God had made a covenant with that he would give them a child and that they would make their descendants, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and um, that they would be made into a great nation and God would bless them um, and people after them through this child. But in Genesis 16, it's the story where Abraham and Sarah are getting a little bit impatient because they're old and they're having trouble getting pregnant. And Sarah um, seems to want to take matters into her own hands and she comes up with this solution. She um, sees this opportunity um, to solve the problem by having her servant girl, Hagar, go into Abraham and to bear a child on Sarah's behalf. And that actually, it seems strange to us, but it may have actually been a custom uh, in, in some other cultures in the ancient Near East, so it, it maybe wasn't as strange as we immediately think. 
Um, but Hagar goes in and conceives a child by Abraham, and of course, this doesn't actually end up solving any problems. It only creates more. Hagar, Hagar ends up looking down on Sarah because Sarah can't conceive this child, and Sarah is hurt and ashamed, and she ends up retaliating against Hagar and sends her away into the wilderness. And so we pick up the, the narrative in Genesis 16, verse 7. I'm going to read it. It won't be on the screen, but I'm going to read it, and if you're looking at it in your Bible, follow along. But as I do, I'm going to read it with the original Hebrew names for God in place of where his name shows up. So this is Genesis uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 7. The angel of Yahweh found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, the servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of Yahweh also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of Yahweh said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because Yahweh has listened to your affliction. And then in verse 10, it's what's on the screen there. So she called on the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are El Roy, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So you'll see in your Bible in 16 verse 10 there um, that it, it may translate it uh, differently than others, but the whole, like in the ESV, it translates it as um, we can see you are a God of seeing. Or in uh, the NASB, it translates it as you are the God who sees me. You are a God who sees but regardless of the translation, the end point is the same. Things have gone sideways for Hagar at this point. They're not really how they're supposed to have been. She was forced out of her master's house after doing what was asked of her. She was left to wander in the wilderness. But the Lord did not forget about her. She was not lost to him. He saw her and he looked after her. And the story ends with a sense of confidence um, that Hagar has. She has received this blessing from the Lord and has recognized her, her, him as someone that she can trust, someone in whom she can have confidence. And so it's with this story in mind, let's turn um, to Psalm 11 together and remember this name, El Roy, the God who sees. And it would be fair of you to be wondering at this point, like, what relevance could this possibly have to the Psalms? Like, I said earlier that El Roy, this name, doesn't show up anywhere in the Old Testament except for in Genesis 16. So obviously it's not going to show up in our psalm anywhere. And it certainly doesn't seem like Psalm 11, which we heard read earlier, is really recounting this narrative. It's not alluding to it in any way. And so really, like full disclosure, there really, to my knowledge, isn't a direct literary connection between these two passages. It's not like David was trying to make this connection. But as I was studying Psalm 11, to prepare for this morning, I ended up in Genesis 16. And it's because of that name of God, it's that characteristic, it's that element of his character, that he is a God who sees. And that's the reason that we can have confidence in him. As we've been studying the Psalms, I'm, and I'm sure many of you have read them in your personal study over the years, we know that these poems, these songs, they are, they're chocked full of emotion and rawness and honesty in prayer. It's one of the things that I think many of us appreciate about the Psalms. Um, they give words to 
these difficult emotions that we, we have sometimes. Um, and Psalm 10 was definitely like that last week. Harold pointed this out to us, that it asks these tough questions of God, this why, oh God, and it goes there with boldness. Why, oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? But in many cases, the psalmists also give words to the deep trust and confidence we can have in the Lord even when we're surrounded by difficulty and we have all these questions. And many Psalms we know, um, you'll hear speakers often say they have a turning point somewhere in them where they ask these questions, then there's some turning point in the middle of the Psalm, and then they go to discuss trust in, in God. And that's what Psalm 10 did. There was a turning point. Harold showed us that last week. Um, but then there's Psalms like Psalm 11, that they're confidence psalms, they're, they're about trust in God. They start with trust in God and they end with trust in God and they go nowhere else in between. And that's what Psalm 11 is. This, this, in it, David is communicating that God is my refuge, God is my king, he is ruler, he is sovereign. In the face of hardship, I'm not going to flee, I'm going to trust him because he sees me, he sees the wicked, he sees what's going on down here. It's not lost on him. And in Psalm 11, as we study it, look first at verse four. We're gonna start in the middle of the Psalm, in verse four, which says this, the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. This, this verse we start here because this is really the critical summary of the whole Psalm. This is the, the hinge point. It's not a turning point in attitude, but it's, it's the central truth that David kind of points to with both parts of the Psalm. That the Lord's throne is in heaven, he reigns. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man, he sees. Now if you were paying attention last week, you'll know that this is a little bit of repetition of what Harold was getting at. Um, he pointed out that after all that questioning that happened in the start of Psalm 10, um, after all of that, those questions of why and how long, the tone changes in verse 12, and then the psalmist points out four characteristics of God. Harold listed them for us. God sees, God cares, God judges, and God reigns. And see, the thing about the psalms is that um, they, were, they were individual song, songs that all got put together in the form of the book that we have now. And I don't think it's an accident that the redactors of Psalms, the editors, decided to put these two songs side by each, right, right one after the other, because they explore a lot of the same themes. There's this turning point in Psalm 10, the psalmist lists these four characteristics, and then the Psalm of David right afterwards, reinforcing those things and expressing the same confidence. So we have this turning point in verse four, and around this turning point, there's kind of two movements of the psalm. So there's the first movement in verses one to three, then there's the turning point, and then there's the second movement in verses five to seven. And so in the first movement of the psalm, in verses one to three, we see David explaining that God is the refuge for the righteous. Let's read those first three verses again. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now we kind of have to pay attention because there's, there's actually two voices in the first movement of this psalm. Commentators will point out that really it's only David speaking in the first two lines of the psalm, and then there's this other voice that they typically refer to as his advisors. 
the people who are present with him. And then it's their voice that says, flee like a bird to your mountain. David is recounting the advice that he's been given. But he is speaking with confidence at the beginning of the psalm because his advisors are saying to him, run, David, get out of here. There's people that are ready to kill you. Their bows are drawn. You're in the line of fire. But you'll see in the second half of verse one that, that David says, how can you say that to me? How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? He's asking this rhetorical question. How can you give me that advice? How can you say that you know God? God is my refuge. I'm going to trust in him. And why? Well, he answers that question of why in verse four that we've already referred to a few times. The Lord is in his holy temple. The, Lord, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see Even though my enemies surround me, David is saying, God is still reigning and he sees me. In the face of danger and uncertainty, David is using this psalm to express his determination to trust that God is going to protect him. He's not going to run away and cower in fear. And now, let's not misunderstand here. The point that David's getting at probably isn't that fleeing is always bad. Sometimes fleeing is absolutely the right response. In acute stress, we have this physiological reaction called the fight or flight response. All of us are, are familiar with it. And in some cases, we would do really well to listen to the flight response and to flee. It can be super helpful. I mean, right now, think about it. In, in um, several communities across Canada, in northwestern Ontario and in British Columbia, um, there's evacuations occurring because there's these forest fires. There's a clear and present danger, and the response is to flee. It's flight. Are the residents of these communities somehow cowards for evacuating their homes? Absolutely not. Are they demonstrating a lack of trust in God because they're getting out? No. Like, how would we respond if we heard a story of someone in one of these communities quoting Psalm 11 and defying the evacuation order? In the Lord I take refuge, how can you say to my soul, flee? We'd likely criticize anyone who takes that response, and I think that would be warranted. It would be kind of foolish. But in David's particular case, in, this, in whatever context he's writing this psalm, fleeing to him does seem foolish. It would reveal a lack of trust in God, he says. And we don't know the particular historical context that drives this, so we can't say a whole lot about the situation, but we know that David is saying, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to trust in the Lord. But if we look carefully at the advice that he gets from flee like a bird to your mountain right to um, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If we look at those words, we can kind of see that it has this tone of panic and despair. There's no hope. There's no trust. They say, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? But, in, but then David is really saying, if God is for me, who can be against me? He's acting out of the wisdom that's summarized in, in Proverbs 18, verse 10, which may have actually been the words of his own son. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. And we, if we think about it that way, perhaps the implication of the psalm really isn't as much David saying, I'm not going to run. He's more pointing out where he is going to run, who he is going to run to. What do you mean, flee like a bird to the mountains? When I'm in trouble, I know exactly where I'm running, and it's not to the mountains to hide. It's straight into the arms of El Roy, the God who sees me. David has confidence in God because he knows that God is a refuge for the righteous. 
He also has confidence in God because he knows that God is a judge of wickedness. In the context of this psalm, like we said a few times, David is being attacked. He's got some sort of physical danger confronting him. In verse two it says, behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. This is the equivalent of David, the ancient equivalent of David being held at gunpoint. His attackers are after him. But in verses five to seven, he's in fairly graphic terms expressing that he's not afraid because God is going to take care of these people who persecute you, persecute him and do violence against him. He alludes to God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, trusting that God will not ultimately let wickedness reign. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. David takes solace that knowing that this wickedness, this evil will not be forever, it's not ultimate, and it's not unseen by God, it will be dealt with. And all of this again is tied to that truth in verse four that God reigns and God sees. Yahweh is on the throne and he is El Roy, the God who sees. So, if we just take the Psalm as a whole, Psalm 11 as a whole, and we take it sort of at face value, we've seen that it's a short poem where David points out that God is first a refuge for the righteous, God is second, a judge of wickedness, and both of those descriptions of him hang on this truth that God is on the throne. He reigns, and he is a God who sees. And as we've gone through the Psalms over the last 11 or so weeks, we've, we've kind of seen how studying these poems is a little bit different than studying all the other passages of Scripture that we typically go to. Right, like other parts of scripture, particularly the epistles, um, Paul's pastoral letters, you know, just by the nature of their genre, they are meant for instruction. They seem a little bit clearer to us when we wanna listen to a message or we wanna read them um, for application in our own lives. And perhaps sometimes when we read the Psalms, it's, it's difficult to see the point. But Darcy's mentioned a few times the, the, in other messages, the reason we're going through the Psalms together is because we do take seriously what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So my challenge this morning is to explain a little bit of why Psalm 11 is profitable. Why is it useful to us? And I think it's useful because in each movement of the Psalm that we've looked at, in the truth that God sees, we can find an encouragement and perhaps a challenge. So let's start actually with the second part of that psalm, that God is the judge of wickedness. First, the encouragement. The encouragement for us is that God sees evil and injustice. It is not lost on him. Since about the 16th century, Lady Justice has been portrayed in images and in statues as having a blindfold on her. She can't see. And this is a way of reminding us that justice is, is blind, it's, it's fair. It is not partial, it doesn't see who it's dealing with, but it's fair. But when we think of God's justice and we read about God's justice in the Psalms, he's actually portrayed the exact opposite. His eyes are not covered, not because he's unfair or partial in some way, but because ultimate justice doesn't miss anything. He is completely aware of everything that goes on here. Harold pointed this out last week, 
And it's really important in understanding how God can be a refuge and a solace in the face of difficulty. We want to know that God is going to do something about the brokenness we see in the world. We need to know that he sees injustice and is going to act, that he's going to step in as judge and arbitrator. He is going to make sure that justice wins. We need to know that he isn't blind to oppression, evil, and wickedness. I mean, because think about a hockey game. What good would a referee be that doesn't see obvious penalties and just lets them slide? What do fans yell when the official isn't making the right calls? What, are you blind, ref? Can't you see what's happening here? We want the referee to pay close attention, to catch that hook, to see that punch, and to make the right call. And the reminder and the encouragement in Psalm 11 is God does. He sees. He isn't missing anything. He has perfect sight on all of this. One day, he will renew, restore, and reconcile all things to himself. In every way that we see injustice and brokenness and evil in the world, we know he will make it right because he sees it all. Hebrews 4.13 says it this way, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And therein lies a little bit of a challenge or perhaps a warning for us when we're reminded that God is judge and that he does see all. Because perhaps this morning we feel like we know ourselves too well to not feel a little bit uncomfortable when we read that nothing is hidden from God's sight and that eventually we have to give account to him. Because I know when I read that last verse of Psalm 11, that last one that says, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. I ask myself, well, okay, God loves righteous deeds, but do I? The upright shall see his face, but is that me? Because if God sees everything, he also sees the hidden depths of my heart. He sees every bit of my behavior. And perhaps this elicits a response in us that's similar to that of Isaiah when he saw God on the throne. Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Perhaps like me, you find the graphic imagery in the second half of Psalm 11 a little bit tough to swallow because you honestly wonder sometimes, am I the righteous that gets to find refuge in him or am I the wickedness, the wicked one who will fear his judgment? And on some level, this is a healthy reaction and response to being in the presence of a holy and just God, a perfectly morally excellent being. We have to take seriously what scripture says about pursuing holiness. He does love righteous deeds. And part of following him means rejecting sin and walking in the light. But remember the second part of Isaiah's vision. In Isaiah 6, it says this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Paul writes it something like this in 2 Corinthians, that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, went to the cross so that we would no longer be numbered among the wicked who fear judgment. Instead, we would be counted as righteous and we can find refuge in him. The challenging reality is that there was wickedness 
within us. The comforting truth is that God has dealt with it. The challenging reality is that there is still evil, wickedness, and sin in the world. But the comforting truth is that God sees it and will deal with it. In the meantime, we are going to have these days when our struggle with sin while we're still here will overwhelm us. There will be days when evil in the world will seem like it is too much to bear. And our hearts will echo the words that we read elsewhere in Psalms. We will echo those questions. Why, O Lord, do you let this continue? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And when we ask these questions, we're in good company with the psalmists. But again, as, as Harold pointed out last week, we don't always get an answer to those questions. But what we do get is a reminder that God sees, God cares, God judges, and God reigns. And therefore, we know in times of distress, pain, and confusion, and difficulty, we have a place to take these questions. We have a refuge to run to. David has reminded us that God is a refuge of the righteous. In the Lord, I take refuge, he says. Again, when David wrote this psalm, perhaps he was under a physical attack of some kind, but he knew that he had a place to go. Similarly, when we are confronted with the reality that things are not as they ought to be, we have a refuge. When we are attacked, we have a defender. When we are in a storm, there is a lighthouse. When things crumble around us, we have a firm foundation. So when our families and peers don't understand the decisions that we make in an effort to follow the Lord, the things we choose to value, the jobs we choose to work, the the way we choose to raise our kids, the people we choose to love and accept, and we feel attacked, God sees that, he knows that, and he's our refuge. When we are confused by loss that we experience, and we can't for the life of us see how this could possibly work out for good, God sees us and he will lead us home. When our plans, our hard work, our good, wise, pragmatic decisions seem to amount to nothing, God sees, God knows, and he gives us a better foundation to rebuild on. We have a refuge to run to. On the flip side of this encouragement that we have a refuge is is a challenge. And it dawned on me when I was sitting with a friend on Wednesday night and he was asking me about what I'd be preaching on uh, this morning. And we just kind of got talking about this idea of running, of fleeing. And all of a sudden, I started to wonder, man, in times of distress, when I do face a storm or a fire, like I know that I can seek refuge in God. But is that actually the first place that I run to? When I'm confronted with stress at work or conflict in my marriage, uncertainty about the future, temptation towards anxiety and self-loathing, like where do I take that? Where do I run? Do I flee like a bird and hide, maybe not in the mountains, but in the four walls of my own house and shut others out? Do I bury myself in more tasks and try to give myself a sense of worth? Do I retreat into a screen to distract myself from what's actually going on? Like how often do I take matters into my own hands and find safety, comfort, and refuge somewhere other than in El Roy, the God who sees? Because I can hear David in Psalm 11 asking me, how can you go there when he is right here? There's no need to hide because these difficulties that we experience, these challenges in life, they are not hidden from God. Just like he saw Hagar, he sees me and he sees you. 
Last week, last Sunday was July 25th, and it was the sixth uh, anniversary since my grandfather, Don Brox, passed away. Last fall, my grandma Dory also uh, went, to, went to be with the Lord. And this week, as I was thinking about this idea of God being a God who sees, a God who watches me, who is aware, I couldn't help but think about Papa's favorite song, His Eye is on the Sparrow. And of course, mom and dad are here, so I can't look at them because I will cry. See, we knew Papa as a bit of a worrywart. And while his temptation sometimes may have been to run to fear and concern, I expect that this song that was a favorite of his was a way to try to train his heart to run to the Lord and not to worry. Let not your heart be troubled, his tender word I hear. And resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. One thing I really appreciate about this song that my papa loved so much is that it just has this tone of quiet confidence in the Lord. This peace It doesn't pretend that our lives are going to be easy all the time and they're going to be absent from difficulty or temptation or distress. I mean, the third verse of the song starts with, whenever I am tempted, whenever clouds arise, when when songs give place to sighing, when hope within me dies. There's an understanding that trusting the Lord doesn't mean pretending that these things don't happen, but it means resting in the Lord's goodness when they do. And this is the same in Psalm 11, this is the point. David isn't pretending that he's not being attacked, he isn't pretending that wickedness isn't there at all, but he is standing firm and saying, I'm not going to give in to panic, I'm not going to spiral into despair, I am not going to run away and hide from my problems, I am going to stand firm in the Lord because he is my refuge, he sees me here and he will carry me through. And this morning I want to close with a story, a story of a man who demonstrated this kind of resolve. It's the kind of courage, um, the kind of faith that uh, David showed in Psalm 11. He was faced with a terrifying situation here on earth and he could have run, but he did not. This is Round Mwewa. He is a church leader on Mbabala Island in Zambia. Uh, across the water from uh, Samphia, where Mark and Carmen Brubaker live. If you don't know who Mark and Carmen Brubaker are, they're missionaries who uh, Woodside supports in Zambia. And over the years, um, Woodside sent a few short-term teams uh, to visit uh, Mark and Carmen and to do some work on Mbobala Island, where, where Round lives. And most of the details of the story that I'm going to share um, this morning come from Mark, even though it happened while a team from Woodside was actually on the island. Um, and I was on that team in, in 2018. Um, on Mbobala Island, traditional beliefs and fears around sorcery are very present, and sometimes false accusations and witch hunts are used to, sur- uh, to settle personal vendettas. Um, Round and the other church leaders on the island on a few occasions have been the target of some of these witch hunts. And one uh, occurred during the night of March 4th, 2018, and again, although I wasn't directly involved, um, I was on the island that night, and um, being that I've personally met Round, um, it's a story that I often recall, and I, and I honestly couldn't get out of my head as I read Psalm 11. 
So it was a Sunday night, and the team uh, had spent the weekend back in Samphia, and then we needed to cross back to the, uh, across the lake to get to the island, um, but bad weather had delayed our departure. It had been raining pretty good that night. Um, we didn't have two, time to make two runs with the boat, so uh, the men went over first, and then the women were going to join uh, in the morning. So the guys arrived on the island um, shortly after 8. Uh, we had something to eat, and then we headed to bed at around 9.30. And as we were kind of settling down, we heard these loud, angry voices from the road outside of the house. Um, this exchange lasted about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, Mark thought it was a domestic dispute of some sort, um, but in the end, a rainstorm kind of brought the exchange to a close, and we all drifted off to sleep. And in the morning, we learned that the sound was actually a mob that had gathered, trying to find around, and was intent on killing him and another one of the church leaders. Um, Mark heard from round the next morning what had actually happened. Um, he and the other church leaders had gathered uh, at the house where we were staying um, to welcome us and to help us bring luggage up from the boat when we arrived. But once it got dark and there was no sign of the boat, they decided, okay, everybody, let's just go home. We'll meet them in the morning. And so they uh, went off to their homes. And uh, shortly after Round got to his place, which was five kilometers north of where we were staying, um, his son came in through the door, warning him, like, there's a mob that wants to come and get you. This mob is accusing you of sorcery um, in, in the recent crocodile attack. So we may not see why those are immediately connected, but the communities around this lake where we were, um, they don't actually believe that crocodiles eat, will eat humans. And so if a crocodile attacks, the only explanation is that a spell of a sorcerer has been cast on it and, and caused it to attack someone. So sadly, croc attacks are often followed by these witch hunts. Um, and they're generally taken as advantage of um, by the accusers to settle grievances or to rob the accused or to simply satisfy a bloodlust. And in this case, Round was the target. So he's been warned that there's this mob coming to the house to kill him. And when he was told this, the implication obviously was, well, you should run, you should get out of here, they're coming for you. Instead, he responded by quoting Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Round could have run. He had time, but he chose to stay and face the mob. And his wife stayed at well, as well, even though her family had come to try to get her out of this, the situation, get her to leave. She refused to leave, stood by her husband's side, and said, if he's, if he's going to die, then I'm ready to die by his side. In one of uh, his newsletter updates, Mark recounted this whole story in detail, speaking of Round's decision to stand firm in that moment. He said, I believe that Round made this choice long before this particular night. He had been falsely accused once before, and after that first incident, he told me that he was no longer afraid of wicked people. In his heart, Round had made a choice to stand up for what was right and to not run in fear of wickedness. So then a mob of about 40 people arrive at Round's house and they're carrying fishing spears, axes, and clubs. They surround the house and they're ready to kill him. But in a show of devotion to their father, Round's three sons grabbed their own weapons and stood at the door and blocked the mob from coming in. The message was clear. You can take our father, but it's going to be over our dead bodies and possibly a few of yours as well. And the crowd began to throw stones at the house, but they didn't advance on it. And the standoff continued, and then another storm blew in off the lake. And between the rain and the stand that Round's sons were taking, the crowd began to waver. 
And so instead, they just decided to raid uh, Round's maize field. They stripped it of all the cobs and they destroyed it. And then it rained long and hard that night and everyone went back to their homes. Round and his family had stood firm. They hadn't fleed and ultimately their lives were preserved. And again, after his account of the events that night, Mark wrote this about Round. There are very few people that I know personally whom I would consider to be my heroes. I know a lot of people who are good, dedicated, honorable, and caring, but I know very few who have put their lives on the line for Christ, who have stood strong in the face of absolute wickedness. Round's struggle against injustice uh, and the injustice of witchcraft has earned him an enduring place as one of the men that I look up to, a man who has put his faith and trust in the God he serves. Mark went on to explain that the story really doesn't have a, a perfect ending, Round was obviously impacted deeply by this attack. In fact, many of the attackers were his relatives, members of his extended family. And fear had also gripped the other church leaders on the island, and they were slow to come to his defense. For two days after this, he sat alone in his house. They were afraid that even association with Round would make them the next target of persecution. Later that week, it was only a, a farewell dinner for the church leaders and, and the team that had come from Woodside that kind of forced the issue and everybody got together again. To me, in thinking about Round's story and his response in distress, it just reminded me of Psalm 11. He personified it. When faced with an attack, when fellow church leaders were afraid and fleeing themselves, Round had the same attitude that David did. In the Lord I take refuge, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? He ran to the Lord, a refuge for the righteous, trusting that the Lord would also judge wickedness, that the persecution that he was experiencing was not ultimate reality, that the Lord hates this wickedness and he will not let it go on forever. And so when we are faced with all manner of difficulty in our lives, when we reasonably ask the questions, why, how long, O oh Lord, Let's train ourselves to respond with the confidence of David and the resolution of round. Let's train our minds to face, the, face wickedness knowing that it will end and that justice will reign. Let's train our hearts to run to the Lord for he is our strong tower. Maybe you're gonna do that by memorizing Psalm 11. Maybe you're going to search out stories like rounds to inspire you to deeper faith. Maybe you'll find comfort in a, in a song like my papa did, his eye is on the sparrow. Maybe you'll study the names of God like I did in Bible school, and you'll learn what they say about him and his character, that he is Yahweh, the self-defining, sovereign God of the universe who makes good in his covenants, that he is Adonai, the master of all things. He is Jehovah Jireh, our provider, and he is Jehovah Rophe, our healer, and he is El Roy, the God who sees, who knows your affliction, and will not abandon you. This, this is our God.